Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Rare Podcast Network, presented by Major General Media. Thank you, Electric as always. This is part two of our New Year 2024 podcast. First part, we talked about the three things and our New Year's resolutions. And uh, this one, we're going to get a little bit more of the food trends and a few other things. But uh, stay tuned and hopefully enjoy. And Happy New Year, everybody. We got an ask, Dave. Dear Dave, as I prepare to dine at Angler SF, I revisited your 2019 podcast with Josh Skeens discussing self-criticism. Back in those pre-COVID days, Dave often spoke about launching restaurants in unassuming locations like malls to enhance American food culture, aiming for widespread access to quality dining experiences akin to Japan. Five years on with Angler's LA's closure and your ongoing discussions about dining experiences, how has your perspective on this mission evolved? The trend feels to be headed in the opposite direction where neighborhood charm and character are needed to have a good dining experience. Hugo from Discord. Well, Hugo, uh, thank you for the, the, the Ask Dave question. I would say the thing that changed the most is that the world ended. <laughs> yeah. There was one major thing. There's this one variable that affected the world at large. Right. Unless you when were Dave off the grid. The world shut down. Dave was talking about restaurants and dining. There was that brief three-year period where it wasn't allowed. (laughs) And people were stuck inside their house. And if there wasn't a generous government subsidy, many restaurants would have gone out of business. Why aren't more people eating in malls and shopping centers, like you said? Oh, because they're all closed. (laughs) And there's a virus. But that being said, I do think that I don't think I'm right. I think this is a temporary thing. Clearly neighborhoods. All you have to do is look in, say, New York. The Atterboro situation was always growing, but it's bananas right now. Fort Greene. Crown Heights. Williamsburg was on its way down. <laughs> now it's like the hottest. You speak to anybody that's in the early 20s. When I say anybody, the people that I speak to that happen to be 22 to 25 years old all they want to do is move to Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not an exaggeration for me. Williamsburg seems to be this beacon of, shit, if you're young, you can have the best time of your life. Let me just tell you, it's not the best time. It used to be. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, Brooklyn Heights. These are always booming, but now they're just very very strong centers of dining. And I can't say the same about everything else. I feel like LA hasn't changed ultimately, but there's been a lot of closures in LA. I think dining is clearly the neighborhood destination restaurant places. It will go back to the strip mall. It'll go back to bad locations. I feel very strong. If you want to sell that, I will buy that stock all day. I don't. I think that when you first said that even, it wasn't necessarily about predicting that but it was if i recall it was really more about if restaurants are to survive or thrive in america if if american dining culture is to thrive restaurants cannot be asked to pay exorbitant rents to have seaside locations overlooking dramatic cliffs and things it has to be this that's how it has to be for it to work and again Part of this goes in this ongoing conversation about trying to be ambitious and risking new ideas. Risking a business because the idea seems to be so far out there that it could not be beloved. It's not playing it safe. And 
the only way for us to sort of incubate that and to nurture those kinds of restaurants, which is, you know, a kind of restaurant that is not for everybody, which, but could be, but it's the kind of restaurant that changes the, the game. That can only happen in places with cheap rent. So places that are not beloved, locations that are not cool, I think that has to be the place where the new, the ambitious go. And that's why I'm still going to be very bullish on that. In New York, again, I maintain that it has to go up. For Manhattan to sort of have a rebirth to some degree, not rebirth, I don't mean it that way, but to bring back the new that is going to the outer boroughs, I think Manhattan, at least, in very populated, densely populated urban centers, it has to go vertical. Right. And I think that if you go to Japan or Korea, you're going to see a lot of restaurants and buildings that you would not think would have restaurants. I'm not talking about fancy shopping malls. I'm talking about buildings that look like a five-story office building. And then the third floor is a restaurant. First, second, fourth, and fifth floor are offices. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but that's just the way it is. We're a long way away from that happening there, but you know, it's it's unfortunate that Angler closed in Los Angeles. I think once Josh Skeens was running it, it was by far my favorite restaurant for dining out in LA. Angler SF, I've never been to. I miss Saison. I do think that Josh is one of the most original voices, at least food-wise, that America's ever produced. I don't like blowing smoke up his ass. So you know that I mean that. He's our friend. And it doesn't have to be Josh, but that's what we need more of. Something that has a distinct approach to food that no one else is trying to do, but influences a lot of people. And after Cezanne opened up, a lot of people tried to emulate what he did because Josh invented Ember Cooking. And a lot of people <laughs> tried to do it. Speaking of Ember Cooking, as a little side note, Chris, what did you have? Some kind of extravaganza. Skeens came over for both um, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Dave was playing it safe, but he had the, the invitation was extended, but he was, he was keeping everybody healthy and... and cold and flu free or COVID free. That was been a long, long, lot of COVID going around. You guys are good. Oh. We're good for now. Dave, uh, Dave, uh, Josh aged a, a lamb and we roasted it over a mesquite and hickory on a rotisserie in my backyard, uh, to my wife's pure unmitigated terror. <laughs> Just like that. We were going to set everything on fire, but it turned out super spectacularly well and skeins did all the cooking. So, and you made a pie. Did, was the pie better this year than last year? Josh, I know you listen to this, and I, I, I've given you your flowers for a delicious lamb, for really delicious beans and, and hot ham water, uh, and he will blame me for screwing up his crostata, which I told him was a pie that people who can't bake make. This is true. Um, That's what crostata actually means in old Italian. A shitty-looking pie. We had, he made two... He made so that's two your TikTok. You know what a crostata means in Italian? A shitty-looking pie. Somebody, <laughs> a.k.a. somebody that is not good at making pie, a.k.a. me. <laughs> I'm a hell of a crostata maker. <laughs> he made some really spectacular... He made the, he's going to kill me for, for blowing up this spot. He made like a cornbread that he sort of like hybridized with cheesecake and baked that. That was pretty delicious. The crostata with wild blackberries bled out everywhere. There was no structural integrity to this crostata. So it uh, had a certain... Uh, Wild as in wow. wild from uh, Costco or Trader Joe's? <laughs> yeah, it was from the forests of Driscoll's. <laughs> the Driscoll Forest. <laughs> no, it was all very good. It was all, it was all very, very What's good. he putting in uh, his crostata crust? It looked very oh dark. My God, what do you say? Mahogany. There were two, there were two 
oh shit he made them with two different grains actually and like a bunch of uh crazy french butter like they were they it looked like it looked like marble it was it was it was probably 60 percent butter to flour really delicious but uh structural integrity did not hold up for us we had some burnt berries mm. <laughs> well i was a little upset that i couldn't join but again i think even if I tasted his food blindfolded, I think I would know that it's Josh's because it's a simple approach to food. And, and I mean this, a lot of, I think he's our closest equivalent to Ducasse in terms of philosophy that we've ever had. A lot of people tried to copy Ducasse, but very few people actually had developed their own technique and style. So, and again, when Josh opened up Cezanne, it was in like Bumblefuck Mission Street. I mean, in the mission in SF, right? It was the back of a cafe. It was like a pop-up in the back of a coffee shop. And that, to your point, exact point of like, you, if you're going to start something crazy, you got to start it where you can afford to start it. And again, there's not a surprise to me that Anna Jack Ty in LA in San Fernando Valley sort of had those vibes to me. Uh, when I went there, it was Taco Tuesdays and all this ambitious stuff happening in the back parking lot. So that's the kind of cooking that I hope that can happen in places that are unexpected, right? And it's really more of a, a statement that we need more ambitious restaurants. We need more chefs taking chances on things. And it's unfortunate that it's just very cost prohibitive to do so, which is why we're getting more and more comfort food, more and more experiential. When I say experiential, where it's more about the, the decor, it's about the service and little about the food. And, you know, that's the equivalent of boy bands or pop or something like that, where it's hard to live on the margins creatively because that's what all people want right now. And I think it's one. I'm just going to say that it's one. So there's a lot more to say about that. Well, let me, can I ask you just one? I know, I know, I know we were, we're approaching our time here, but what do you think of people like Josh or Wiley who, you know, are these sort of maverick chef types, these, these visionaries who then want to step into those sort of like pop realms, make pizza, make Italian food. Like, can they still put their imprint on these new, I mean, on these endeavors that seem like the comfort endeavors? Mm, I don't think so. Because people have expectation of what of all of what they're going to get. No, it's just a different kind of cooking. I mean, there's very few chefs today that I think are trying, and a lot of them, no surprise, have three mission stars and et cetera, et cetera, that are trying to do something singular with a point of view. I think cooking with a point of view is so fucking hard. And developing that point of view from a culinary creative way is easy on paper, but really does take a not necessarily career, but it takes some time fucking up and honing that. A lot of failure. A ton of failure to get there. I always think about Farhan Aja, who basically had 10 years in the wilderness, destroying things, making horrible foods until he developed a point of view that actually sort of changed the way modern gastronomy happens. So I, I'd say, again, this goes hand in hand with location, is finding a place where you're not so strapped for cash because of rent and build out where you can fuck up and develop something over time. So point of view to me is something that I'm seeing less and less of. And I don't blame anybody for not having that because it's a scary time to do something that's different. It's super scary. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else. When I go out to eat, sometimes I'm like, oh, why are you fucking up there? I just want this. I'm as hypocritical as anybody. I understand that. But, you know, um, finding a point of view is not easy to come by these days. I don't think you can have that necessarily. I'm not, let me take that back. You can do it in pizza. Chris Bianco does it all the time. Right? Um, 
So we'll see. We'll see. I don't know if that answered your question, Hugo. Thank you for sending that in. My sort of quick prediction of dining is it's going to become much more of it used to be in the 90s. Right. We've, we've, everything is cyclical. And I think that the next 10 years is going to be, when I say 90s, I'm thinking about New York City 90s dining in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s, which I wasn't there, but I've read a lot about. And I feel like that is where we're at. We've gone full circle back to that kind of dining. And that is going to be how many urban centers dine in America. Yeah, which follows, uh, not, not necessarily follows, but like, if anybody doubts that, like, that's what happens in fashion and music and pop culture generally right now, right? Again, 90s fashion is back, including the NBA uniforms, which might be the worst uniforms of all time. <laughs> Everything that's new happened once before. All right, let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. All right, we got a, we got a Dave Stradamus, some of my predictions for this coming year. And I saw this recently because I was talking to Eric Wareheim, who's working on this awesome steak book, which I'm excited about. I'm really excited about. But he was mentioning a restaurant that did a baked potato cart. And ironically enough, Chef Tim at Major Domo is launching a baked potato cart for the new year. I think for a long time, I was betting heavily on experiential dining where tableside cart service was going to be all the rage. And I think it was right. And you saw that in 2019. I think the pandemic happened. A lot of people thought tableside service was going to disappear because of all the things that happened in the pandemic. I think that's come back and then some. You're seeing table cart service everywhere. But instead of the pre-pandemic table cart service of luxurious items, of slicing Wagyu or tuna or something that cost a ton of money or some caviar service. You're going to see that high and low. And I, so I, I think this is really an indicator of more high and low mergers than ever, ever before in all facets. And this is just one of them, which is you're going to see table cart service that was usually the providence of super, super high-end, very expensive items merged for something that is relatively pedestrian like a baked potato. And I think that dichotomy makes it a real showstopper, makes it seem accessible. And you have the optionality to customize it so it's something that is expensive, but you're sort of putting a lot of premium on something that, again, has been thrown by the wayside in terms of popularity for a long time. And the reality is, everybody loves a baked potato that is fully loaded. It's delicious. <laughs> again, it's not everything, but think about the baked potato for a second. One is, it's a clean vehicle. Two, everybody understands what it is all across almost all cultures, right? I don't say all cultures, but 
if you have potato in your cuisine, which is a relatively new thing over the past hundred years, you pretty much have a baked potato of some sort. So it's easily identifiable. And think about this. This is where I, I think food gets into art quite a bit. There's something that you can connect with immediately. Nobody ever looks at a baked potato and thinks that's for rich people. Everybody looks at a baked potato and assumes that it's accessible of humble origin, that it's going to be nourishing, it's going to be filling, but it's not something that you would ever assume is going to be an ambitious dining or something that's going to be celebratory. Nobody ever looks at a baked potato and says, this is a celebration with the exception of people that came up during the war. And I mean by my grandparents and when I talk to Nona's when I'm in Italy, they're like, the potato is more important to us than a truffle, right? For anyone that's under the age of 60, no one gives a shit about the potato in that regard. So what I mean by that is, again, what, what kind of food can you look in a restaurant where everybody, when a table cart geared on gets pulled into a restaurant and you unveil a potato or salt baked potato or something that is so meager in origin and everyone knows what that looks like and everyone has an understanding of that. Not many foods can be that. It's really not many. So that's what gives it this amazing property. Two, so number one, it has to be humble in origin. Number two, I think you have to have optionality. Mm. Everyone can customize your potato, yeah. Right? Yeah. That, again, is probably the most important thing moving forward, not just in 2024, but for the next 25 years. Illusion of choice, right? You need to be able to say, I want it this way. And we've talked about this a lot in the podcast and two, three, four, five years ago about getting something. It's one of my beliefs why Chipotle is so popular with the millennial and Gen Z. You can customize it. It's the same reason why In-N-Out is so popular. You can customize it. But the reality is there's not that many fucking choices. And you might say that mathematically there's 2,000 choices. Let's be honest here. There's like six fucking choices. (laughs) But in this day and age, be able to say, I want it with sour cream, bacon, cheese, and, you know, hot sauce or whatever is available to you that ownership of having that potato is not so different than like I ordered better than you. There's a little bit of a competition, right? Which people don't talk enough about when you're ordering with friends or eating with friends. But being able to say this is mine when everyone else has the same thing is important. It's no different, again, when I'm in Japan and I see the fashion of how original the fashion is in Japan, Japanese culture, which is, I think is very different than the fashion in Korean culture, which a lot of it is trying to buy. Japanese is trying to literally use things that are existing and to change their hair color too, to show kind of some kind of individualism. And it's very distinct to me. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining that, but I feel like when everybody sort of looks the same, J- Japanese culture, particularly in Tokyo, they do an amazing job of being able to say, this is who I am. This is what I look like. And it's very different than anyone else. I think that being able to do that with food is very similar. And which is why it resonates with a lot of people when this homogenized sort of culture that we're living in when being able to make that individual choice about food. I know I'm just talking about baked potato, but it's an important thing, right? It's the one choice you have that you feel that you have agency over and a life where everything seems to be made for you already. And, and three, it has to be visually stunning. And stunning mm-hmm. doesn't have to be over the top. It could just be something again, that has that weird dichotomy. Like what? You know, that doesn't make any sense. I thought about this a fucking lot, guys. Very rare do I have an organized (laughs) thought of one, two, three. But it just so happens that it's not just the baked potato. It could be anything that has those ability, that ability. And going back to the customization, it allows somebody 
to make it super luxe if you want. And one of the best vehicles for a baked potato is caviar. So my prediction for a baked potato of 2024 is on your Instagram and TikTok, you're going to be seeing a fucking shit ton of baked potatoes and caviar. <laughs> a lot. And you're going to see that and it's going to be beautifully constructed. And that's my, I almost give you a guarantee you're going to start to see that. Wow. I love that. I, mean, I, th- I think it's super interesting what you're talking about. I mean, you have been talking about this for a while and I think you've been way ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. It's just only really occurring to me on the sort of that bespokeness or like, this is my unique potato, my unique dish. That's like a little bit new in food culture, I feel like. It used to be, I want to go to this restaurant because I've heard they have the greatest X, Y, or Z thing. And I'm going to eat this thing that everybody else has had. I got to go eat the thing that everybody else has had. And I do think you're right that that this desire to have some form of individuality, the illusion of choice, as you called it, like that is a kind of a new impulse for people. And I think some of it has to do with like a, a small version of what you were saying earlier, where like you've tasted everything, right? And like now people have tasted more than they had before. Now, like as American, maybe this is the first sign of like American food culture evolving in some way and not just wanting what everybody else has had. And I remember reading, like you were, you're, I, I do think you're doing a good job explaining it. The, the one other sort of cultural touchstone I have is when you say illusion of choice, I remember reading this book uh, called Extra Lives that uh, this guy Tom Bissell wrote about video games. And it was like 10 or 15 years ago. And at the time, everything in video games is like illusion of choice, right? Like, oh, I'm wandering this big open world of Grand Theft Auto, but really... I can only go into like six of these doors and the rest are just for show. You know, like that was the illusion of choice and everything in video games has changed to make these worlds even more massive and even more customizable and more things you can do. And yet there's always like, you still have to be on some kind of a track, but like that to me is what uh, is maybe what you're talking about in food also, where it's like, I want more doors or at least the illusion that I can go into more doors and like make something that is, that is uniquely mine or have an experience that is uniquely mine. I think very similar. Very, very similar. The other sort of bet that I have for 2024 is, and Helen Rosner wrote a great piece about the plateau. And if you haven't checked out what she's been doing at the New Yorker now that she's the food critic, her, I mean, she's a, she's just really good at writing. Number one, she's probably the best professional food critic out there right now, in my opinion. Number one, because she's just a great writer and she understands things. But she wrote a great piece about plateaus, seafood plateaus. And, it, and, and that sort of coincided with what I've been thinking too, mainly because of I've been going to Musso and Frank's and I've been, everybody loves shrimp cocktail. I've been fa- infatuated with the idea of shrimp cocktail for so long because it's, it's just so, so American. I think you're going to be beginning to see all kinds of shrimp cocktail in 2024. It's going, not that it could make a resurgence, but you're going to see new versions of it and new artistic ways to express how you might eat that, right? So it's not going to necessarily just be cocktail sauce, right? You're going to see poached or cold shrimp served with a lot of how somebody might might have grown up with their own flavors and their own culture in the, the, the vehicle that looks like a shrimp cocktail. I think you're going to start to see shrimp cocktail on every motherfucking menu. Because it's awesome. And I think, again, similar to a baked potato, understanding, it's very easy to understand. Everyone knows how to cook it for the most part, some better than others. But being able to tweak that, I think you're going to see that. The plateau takes a lot of, a lot of time. But the shrimp cocktail, I think we're going to see innovations in that that we've never seen before. 
Man, Americana, big in 24. Yeah. Baked potatoes and, and shrimp cocktails. This gets me to, in general, another trend, which I think you're going to see oyster bars and seafood houses become more the rage than ever before. Okay. Because this was, this was a question I had as I was think, pondering this exact thing. Because in, in my little bubble, you see a lot more of this stuff, uh, you know, the raw seafoods, the cold bars and things. But, like, do you think it's, it has the legs, no pun intended here, to, yeah. like, be national? Well, number one, logistics are so great now that you can get shellfish, like, very, very good shellfish delivered to your door. There is issues with global warming, that aside. It is a premium item that it's expensive. So there's a, a, a sense of celebration with that, right? You can see that when you're ordering food with a group of people and you say, hey, does anyone want oysters? There, to me, I've always asked this. There's more of, yeah, yes, let's get oysters than there ever was before. Before people were like, nah. I think, again, my limited data, more people are enthusiastic about getting oysters. I think a lot of that has to do with social media. People are just more educated about it. They're, they're tempted by that forbidden fruit of what an oyster is. Again, a lot of people may not like it, but that's why. It has that same, weirdly, like uni became almost more popular to foodies than oysters, but I think oysters is catching on in that degree. The plateau, when that comes out, is a showstopper. And I've been dealing with that ever since I started cooking for Tom Clicky when I had to make these stupid fucking plateaus. I've seen that, which created the bosom and all of these things. When we, Anyway, that's a whole nother subject. But shellfish bars, oyster bars, seafood houses, whether it's solely dedicated to that or larger menus of restaurants are now dedicated to that, it's going to become a thing. One is not much cooking needs to go into it, right? A lot of it is a la minute. So the preparation for that is relatively little. Even if you poach a shrimp, it's a corbouillon or some version of that. But a lot of it is done in the moment. While that takes trained labor, you don't need so much fucking labor. Right. And nothing about that trained labor is if you know how to do that, people it's it's easy to teach somebody what you might be doing for the raw fish crudo program. Right. And I'm not talking about crudo, I'm just talking about shellfish program. And I think because it's expensive, because it's an experience, because it's wildly uh like photogenic, that's why you're gonna see more of it. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. sure, you do. You think there is a is there is there like a, a like for I mean like, people who grew up eating oysters. It's one thing. Is there a barrier for to entry for new oyster people? I think there's a lot of people that say they like oysters, but they don't like oysters. But they only say they like oysters because they don't want to be made fun of. <laughs> and there's a lot of people I, that I, think I was, they know a lot about oysters, but they don't know fucking shit about oysters. And there's a lot of people that think they know how to shuck oysters at home, but they suck at it as well. I would say those three groups you just described comprise 98% of oyster eaters. <laughs> That's most oyster people. I, it, it's shocking except to that, me how Except many that times, one dude we ran into in New Orleans who has his own oyster farm or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> people just don't know how to eat oysters well. I mean, for me, I don't like... My biggest pet peeve when eating oysters is someone just spritzing lemon juice over everything. Or after that, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Settle the fuck down. That is like such an aggressive move just to season everybody's oyster. I was like, think about that. It happens all the time. Somebody always just takes the lemon and they just assumes that everybody wants it. Like, what are you doing, man? Mm -hmm. This is the perfect, perfect food of oyster. The oyster is the most perfect 
nature's most perfect food. It's literally containing Poseidon's nectar. <laughs> and you're about to just be like, we need some lemon on this whole thing. No, this I, whole situation. I, I only do cocktail sauce on fried foods and cold shrimp. Bivalves, particularly oysters, they depend. East Coast oysters, I might do a mignonette, potentially. Or something that might be a kimchi consomme, which we invented. <laughs> and I fucking see it everywhere. Just trademark me. It's not so, that sounds so asinine to say, but it never fucking happened. I know. I know. Let me ask you this. And I can tell Does you how it happened. The consomme gelatin clarification technique that was adopted by Hessen Blumenthal, that was taught to Wiley Van, that was taught to me. You could get this perfect clarification and this distillation of the essence of a liquid. And we were doing a lot of balsam. Nobody was doing clarification technique that way in the world. I know this. And that's how it happened. Anyway. Is the listen, I, I full, full, full credit there. And it and, and uh it is everywhere. It's just everywhere. So I think East Coast oysters can use spiciness and a little bit of acidity. Yeah. West Coast oysters can always use some kind of melon. If anything, West Coast oysters need some textural elements like cucumber or melon brunoise or something like that. But for the most part, I want it clean. Mm-hmm. And there's only two oyster variations, really. Everything is a variety from it. Just like dogs came from wolves. All oysters today came from the, uh, the, the, the Blue Point and the Kumamoto. Let me ask you an etiquette digression question here. You, I, I'm with you on poor form to see a platter of oysters and to assume that everybody wants lemon squeezed on it. Now, do you think that that lemon rule is applied across the board? If any food comes out with like a citrus wedge or something to be squeezed on top, is it to each individual diner's taste to squeeze some? Or yeah, would you I, ever... I think in general, yes. Even if you get a frito misto, fried calamari... I would rather somebody, if I saw, again, if we were dining with people and we had frito misto, so fried seafood medley, and we're eating it as an appetizer, I think it te- it's telling to me, and not in an OCD way, but if somebody took like some of this thing, a little, little squid, a little shrimp, whatever, whatever, and they take a lemon wedge and they put a little dot on, a drip on each one, and then they eat it, like that, Tells me so much about that individual. What exactly? I don't know. In the sense, but like in terms of personality, but like what what I mean by that is in terms of a diner, they they know exactly what they want. I don't know if they're a serial killer or not, because it could be a, a good correlation there. But they, they they that they're a gourmand. That's what I mean. Is that they're putting it on, and they're not letting it wait. They're not talking to somebody. It's a little bit of lemon juice on a fried shrimp. And immediately into their mouth. And then after they eat that, they put a little bit of lemon juice on another piece of squid and then into their mouth. I I don't like it putting lemon juice on anything fried right off the bat because guess what? The reason it's crispy is because you just evaporated all the water content. Mm -hmm. Now you're reintroducing. I'm not saying, which is why fish and chips with vinegar is so fucking stupid. Again, shout out to Hessen Blumenthal who atomized the spray for vinegar because that's a smart way of adding vinegar to something that's fried and crispy. But for the most part, Something that's deep fried, I want it to be bit by bit. Almost like you do in tempura, where it's just like, if they do any acid, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, sudachi or, or something like that. It's just a little bit to balance out. Again, frying is not to, frying in citrus is not to mask 
the smelliness or seafood. It's just to balance out, in my opinion, the fattiness from the oil. So no. Mm-hmm. If I see somebody doing it, I don't freak out. I'm just like, okay. They're, they're a rookie. You're like, that's a communist. That's, that's, I mean, they're that's, just that's not right a professional a leader. It's okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I've gone on about shellfish, and I just think that you're going to see, not that it's a surprise, but I think you're going to see more and more of that because think about this. Almost every place that serves some kind of Americana food now serves spicy tuna rolls. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> or some kind of pressed sushi including hillstones. You can't. There's no more room to iterate there. Next, you know, so it's got to be from the, the cold raw bar station. My third thing is this. I'm going to call 2024 post-peak Korean because I think 2023 was peak Korean. And I, I, I want to preface this as not as a negative thing, but number one, I still think that Korean food is not going to truly be understood when people, until people know what they're eating and why they're eating it. And I don't think that conversation has happened at all from a food media perspective. Why is this marinated a certain way? Why do people eat spam? Why is this kimchi white? Why is this et cetera, et cetera? That kind of explanation education happens with Italian food. It does not happen with Korean food. It happens with Japanese food. Hey, this is the order. This is why you eat ginger. This is why you have sake. This is why you have green tea. That kind of protocol etiquette has not happened yet with Korean food. So I'm, I'm reticent to say that we've reached peak Korean, but I think that happens post. Once that, edit, and it will happen, but I think that happens 10 years from now. And when I say peak, post-peak, I think because we don't have that education, that is not going to line up with this continued growth of Korean food. And so when, let me just phrase this properly. This has nothing to do with the restaurants and the ambitious restaurants and all the amazing restaurants that are making amazing Korean food in an ambitious way, which mostly is, is located in Korea. I'm so happy. I'm honored. I'm so fucking stoked that that is the case. My concern is we do not have the audience ready to fully embrace it yet. Other than it's, it's new. It's a fad. It's not a fad per se, but like I hope that it's not a fad. But because we don't have that education, because we don't know why, I don't know if it is sustainable. Hmm. And that's why. That's why hmm. I think that I have not yet seen that. And I don't know if that's going to happen in a year or two years. I think this is going to happen another 10 years. People know this about Japanese food, and they still know nothing about Japanese food or evening sushi. But again, case in point, you know, when Billions had that great case with Wags eating at sushi and having that scene where they're reprimanding those, t- those finance bros, you need moments in culture that educate people that don't give a shit about food. We're not even close to that yet, where people are educating people. You don't eat kimchi that way. You don't do panchan. That's not this. You don't eat it like that. You know what I mean? Like, we're so yeah, far it, removed from that. Yes. I think there's a, I think that there is a inflection point there, too, where there's like two, two roads tend to emerge with these cuisines, right? Like the, the crispy tuna box sushi, spicy tuna roll is like a fork in the road from like what happened with sushi counter sushi in America, right? Yeah. Like it, it went in two different ways. And like, I think that you can absolutely see that happening with Korean food where the fad part of it 
is is going to be Americanized, right? Like you already see all of the flavors of Korean barbecue marinades and everything like seeping their way everywhere you go. There's Korean barbecue this, Korean barbecue that. Like that's going to be the box sushi version. The Which longer is, it's tail, because it's fucking delicious. Because <laughs> it's because it, it's it's because it, that's why it took off in the first place, right? Because it makes people happy and like it it like fits in with like our. Well, we've been talking about this a lot, right? The you're right. The 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 sort of the undercurrent of of making it popular, right? And I think a couple of years back, we were talking about kimbap, beco- even before the pandemic, kimbap becoming the thing for Korean. And I still maintain that it is, right? In the same vein that Korean fried chicken is becoming a thing, right? Next thing you're going to see McDonald's with their Korean fried chicken sandwich. Whether that exists or not, because I know it does in Korea, that's the kind of thing when it reaches acceptance that makes Korean food something else. I think kimbap is on the verge or precipice of becoming something that, because you can't, do much more to maki rolls. The only next evolution is something that is more kimbap or what we talked about on the Hulu show, Mexican-Japanese, right? So I yeah. think it's right. Whether it happens for sure, I don't know. But again, it's a good bet to take. But this year of high-end Korean steakhouses, high-end Korean tasting menu restaurants, I hope it continues. I hope that more and more people know about it. I'm a little concerned that people know nothing about I mean, we have books. There's a Jang book coming out. I think the the Atomix team just came out with a fantastic Korean cookbook, but we haven't had the alignment as well as other cuisines have had in the past. And it just has happened so quickly that I'm afraid that the audience isn't as sophisticated as they actually think they are. When I say the audience, the fucking food media too. <laughs> they know <laughs> jack fucking shit. <laughs> what do you think about that, you know? I mean, it's important to consider like the factors that drive this as well. It's like reinforced through things like, you know, Korean drama watching and like, you know, Korean entertainment just entering and like that. I think that audience is still like, it's going to be a growing and stronger audience into the future. And so you're going to continue to see like Korean food trends, you know, come stateside just through like seeing it on Netflix or seeing it on, you know, whatever show that you were watching. So I think that that part of it is strong and that's why the Korean way will continue. So that's. Yeah, but. Dalgoma is, is very different than, you know, Kejar. You know, like all of these food trends that have happened on TikTok because of Korean TV shows. I agree with you. But I'm talking about the kind of audience that is actually populating the ambitious Korean restaurants. And I think there's a complete disconnect. People are going there because it's new, it's hard to get in, but they don't know what the fuck they're eating. And I don't think they're, you can eat there without truly, you can eat there and have a fantastic meal. But for, Long-term success, people need to know exactly why they're eating and why it's delicious. That's, that's just my personal belief. I could be wrong. Happy to be wrong. I would like to be wrong. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. 
other prediction is Fogo de Chao is going public this year. And I think you're going to see a lot more restaurants that are going to adopt. I've been a long time admirer, believer in the Brazilian steakhouse. I tried to open a restaurant that was Korean steak, Korean barbecue done in a Brazilian steakhouse way. I still hope that somebody does it. Maybe we do it. But I think the Brazilian and South American steakhouse is going to become a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Brass-fed beef is going to become more of a thing than before. So, you know, how exactly, I don't know, but you're going to see that kind of meat-eating culture become more of a thing. Mm-hmm. Open fire. I, saw, I, I, I had this in mind as well, thinking about the, the Churrascaria, the Argentinian-Brazilian steakhouse of it all. Uh, actually at Christmas when we were roasting this whole lamb with skeins and we were like, I, it, you know, it occurred to us very late in the game that we had no idea how to serve this thing. <laughs> we couldn't take this off the spit and bring it in our house. I don't have a gigantic uh, meat carving station. So we just had people line up in front of the rotisserie and just gave them what they wanted. And people were so beyond happy to tell us <laughs> my Chinese relatives, especially were ex- extremely eager to tell us exactly what they were looking for. And, uh, you know, Josh's mother-in-law is like, I want a piece with no fat, but lots of flavor and very tender. We're like, okay, like we'll search this animal for that exact piece. But I think people are really into this notion of like, oh, there's only so much of this thing. And I have particular tastes about what I want. And it is a part of Asian eating. It is when you go to like a Chinese barbecue restaurant, like you go and order roast pork or whatever, like, the Chinese grandma, grandfather, uncle comes in and they're not just like, give me a pound. They want a piece of the belly and they want a piece of the loin. They want a piece of the leg. And I do think there's something about like that bespoken is kind of like your baked potato prediction where like me eating like this is, is really exciting for people. There's a restaurant in Sydney run by uh, some friends I haven't seen in quite some time. And, and, and uh, they run a bunch of great restaurants, but Porteño has been around decade plus and it's in Sydney, and it's their take on our Argentinian steakhouse. Very good. But it's that experience, that sort of throwback era type of thing, where, again, I think you're going to see the creation of those kinds of restaurants. Could be totally wrong. I don't think it's going to happen in New York City. But you're going to see, it, it, you need a place where you can have open fire with wood burning. And it's just a hypnotic kind of restaurant if you're able to get that. And... So that might be a little too early, but I just think it's a matter of time before that is how a lot of new steakhouses are going to be. Very similar. And it could be in Chris's backyard. Pop-up restaurant coming soon. <laughs> Come on down to Josh Old Yingy's Yingy's Barbecue. And then another one that I think you're going to see more and more of are more collabs. 2024 is going to be the year of collabs, 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 collabs everywhere. Are you saying between chefs? Or are you talking about between chefs and brands and products and what kind of collabs everything i mean we've done our own collabs too but getting the attention of the diner is very difficult and collabs are a guaranteed way of getting you know interest and i think a lot of chefs are seeing the success of pop-ups and so basically a collab is a pop-up within a permanent restaurant and i think you're going to see a lot more of that across the board Mm -hmm. how far do you think that can go i mean i'm thinking about like the way that you have credited APL and Wiley and other people on menus. And I'm thinking about like Corey at in situ sort of being like the farthest end of this where like every dish is somebody else's. And I think about like an album, like a pop album or a rap album. We have so many guest verses, you know, every single track has a guest. Like 
how far can this collab idea go for a restaurant? In Japan, you have the chef at Florilege, you have the chef at Den and another chef. They're really close friends. They have like, I think, two restaurants that they operate together. One, I think, is opened up in Hong Kong or something like that. You mean three fucking superstars doing it. You know, I've, off, I've often thought about that with some of our mutual friends. I think that you're, you, that's the next version of it, uh, of, the, of the, you know, Jose's sort of done that with um, Ferran and, and Albert Adria at uh, Little Spain. The highest end version of this is going to be the super group, much like the NBA team. You're going to have three chefs doing something together. That is inevitable. I'm not even talking about that. To me, that's already happening. And you're going to see more yeah. of that because this is, yeah. I'm laughing because I, I'm just like, you, you saying that about Den and Florilege just gave me like a very visceral flashback to a drunken conversation I had with Josh Keens where he's just like, do you think like me and Dave and Corey could open a restaurant in Vegas? Just like all three of us on the door. And I was like, I think that you would have trouble not making Let's a think about trillion that. dollars. Let's see what would happen if Corey Lee, myself and Josh Keens open up a restaurant. That would, um, <laughs> who would be James Harden there? <laughs> we just have all the potential who in the world. Kevin Durant? Super team. <laughs> it's been three years since these three three opened a restaurant and they've yet to cook one meal together. Yeah, I don't think that would work out so well. Mainly, I feel bad. But for do you Corey. believe in the? I super would mainly group? feel bad for Corey Lee. Like, yeah, of course. What the fuck. But do you believe like like that's that's a supergroup restaurant? Like, if you open like Vegas would be the place for like three chefs to open a restaurant. Do you think that's like attractive to the diner? A supergroup restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I, I I could imagine if I go, hey, uh, Renee, let's open up something together for like six months. That'd be fun. <laughs> I bet you that if I put it together, Renee would probably say yes. I mean, I know we already covered our 2024 resolutions. And you know what it's going to be called? Like... Nomafuku. <laughs> yeah, the best name ever. That's been around a long time. <laughs> or, you know, the, the collab that I've always joked was with, with um, Chris Bianco and Chad Robertson is KPK, Korean Pizza Kitchen. As a joke, mm -hmm. but not mm -hmm. a joke, coming soon. <laughs> to an MGM hotel near you. That super collab restaurant, you're right, has to happen in a place like Vegas or a place where a real estate developer is going to, you know, foot the bill for just about everything. Yeah. I mean, just to go back in the day, it's not that it's brand new. Greg Kuntz and um, John George were going to open a restaurant together back in the day, I think, at the Time Warner Center. Really? Changed. I can't remember if it was Greg. No, it was Spice Market. Greg Gray was involved. Is usually, you know, John George. So, like, it, people have always talked about doing this, but, and it certainly has happened, but I think it's only going to come more, more and more and more. And we already have examples of it. I mean, you got three of the biggest chefs in the game of all time, really, the Albert Audrey brothers, you know, and they're involved with Little Spain in New York. So, you know, that, that's going to happen. But, wow. you know, if you, wow. if you just said Albert Adria and Rene Redzepi and Ferran Adria are going to open up a restaurant together, right? It's going to break the fucking internet. You know what I mean? It's going to literally break the food internet. Yeah, I think Nomafuku might be the biggest no. <laughs> might be the biggest That would be way bigger. One, I would though, actually honestly. want to go. Or if you said Heston Blumenthal and Alice Waters are opening a restaurant together, people are like, "What? I got to <laughs> I got to go. I would be like, "Fuck, I got to go to that." I feel like this is going to happen, man. It's like you guys going to be the traveling Wilburys, man. You know, Rodney Scott and Masakichi Anamoto opening a restaurant together. That is the finally the barbecue Kaiseki restaurant. I'd be like, yeah, it's fucking no. 
That's the, that's the thing. It's even for me that someone that's so dead inside. When I hear that, I'm like, oh fuck, you know? Oh fuck, I you gotta know, go to that. There, this is also like somebody who's so dead inside. This is actually flashing me back to something that you and I cannot talk about, where we did hear about a potential one of these, where you were exactly like, you're like, oh fuck, I have to go to that. Yeah, you know, if Alain Ducasse and Josh Keynes did a pop up at the Javits Center in New York City, I'd be like. Fuck. I think I got to go to it. Center. <laughs> Only 120,000 people at once yeah. just at the Javits Center. You know? Uh, you, you name it. Any kind of pop-up where you're like, well, that, that seems like we are the world. Listen, it's yeah. happened in music. It's happened in art. I don't yeah. know if it's happened in fashion too much. But again, if you take the variables in other parts of culture, it's going to happen. It happens with Sneakers, it happens in high-end jewelry. It happens all the time. It's inevitable. You're going to see this on a on a mass scale in high-end restaurants. It's just waiting and, to happen. Where, wherever it happens, people fucking love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, said. I'm just trying to think of any kind of fucking example. You know, you if, have a fucking, you could like sitcom crossovers. People love them. <laughs> just yeah. like music collabs. People love them. Like, yeah. And I'm just saying, it happens all the time. You have the 12 days of Christmas. You have uh, Jeremy Fox's whole thing that he has at Birdie G's, it drives traffic. And sometimes they're great. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Way to go, Chris. Way to bring everyone down. <laughs> the last thing, my last prediction, and Chris brought it up at the beginning of the pod, or the first part of the pod, was beans. I think 2024 is the year of the bean. And if one more person, if literally one more person says, have you heard of Rancher Gorda Beans? I'm going to fucking. <laughs> I don't have the patience anymore. I just don't. Have you heard of oh, Rancher Gorda Beans? I'm like, <laughs> have you heard of Ben's Bacon? What the fuck? <laughs> Did you know that? Do you know that America has country ham? I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is so brutal. It's so brutal. Oh my God. But you believe in the bean. I believe in the bean because it's a high protein source. It's shelf stable. And again, if you sort of sift through the trash of the culinary or cultural wastelands, not that the bean is part of it, but if you put that into a scale of what is actually in vogue, historically speaking, the bean is almost always the diary of a wimpy kid. You know what I mean? It's just not cool. It's gross to a lot of people, et cetera. It's got a lot of flatulence jokes, but a high source of protein. And it's something that has, Tofu in a lot of ways, clearly a bean, but it can be made extremely delicious. So you're really underselling over delivery. And anything that's a food product where you can undersell and over deliver, because every time you have a great bean dish, you're like, fuck, man, why don't I eat more beans? Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a trend of more beans and more restaurants having beans. And also because it's a very cost effective dish, right? And people are beginning to realize that you can make not necessarily easy, but the more, f- I, I don't know why the misconception that beans have to be in a, a, a broth or a, a liquid that's not very flavorful. But the reality is if you cook beans in a super flavorful liquid, it's going to be super fucking delicious too. And all of those things, cheap, can take a lot of volume once it's rehydrated, can become delicious. There's a lot of different varieties of beans, right? A ton of varieties, each with their own characteristics and properties. You know, I think this is the year of the bean for sure. <laughs> 
I, I think that it has a little bit of that same thing that ramen did too, where it was like, everybody's only heard of like the, the most commercial form of this. Like you say beans, most people are like, Oh, a can of beans, a can of beans. How can that be good? It has like so much potential beyond that. But most people, if, if people can start to bake their own bread or make everything from scratch, most people are probably associating beans with something canned. And there's nothing wrong with canned beans, right? I use them all the time. In fact, I used one the other day just to make chili. But if you make beans with good beans from a good farmer from scratch and you soak them and you cook them, it's something incredibly satisfying. And every time you eat them, you're like, why don't I eat this more often? Have you heard of Rancho Gordo? Yeah. <laughs> and they're so good. <laughs> they are good. Uh, last, My last trend. More and more tertiary. And uh, what's after tertiary? Fourth? Oh, quadrillary? <laughs> and news aggregator sites that are completely garbage will continue to write articles about, did you know MSG is not bad for you? Oh, my God. That's going to just clog up your feed of, did you know that MSG is actually not bad for you? You're going to see that. This is the year of complete MSG acceptance. No. Yeah. Complete I, I, MSG acceptance. Yeah. Well, clearly you're going to have the flat earthers. I mean, we have, <laughs> we can talk about understanding the world in ways that we could never fathom and we still have people that believe the world is flat. So yes, you're going to have people... So, that, I mean, complete MSG acceptance to me is, is is not even just the articles that are like, did you know it's not bad for you? It's going to be like, you need to buy this new MSG and start using it. No. Or you need to buy I mean, I, I've wanted MSG. to for the longest time. I'm not even going to talk about the MSG products I want to do, but uh, <laughs> people at... Uh, you want to do I one don't of those mobile food? Momofuku yeah. Rancho Gordo collabs. Thankfully, there is a beans. group think that prevents me from running it because <laughs> we would have had 19 different MSG products. Seriously, I wanted to sell a fucking MSG spray. I wanted to make, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think we're going to see more, more, more MSG on your menu in your restaurant. Proudly having an MSG something. So they're just going to start off with a cocktail, but then. It may be MSG and other things that you may not realize. Like it'll be called, you know, fries with chicken salt, et cetera, et cetera. But there'll be a lot of products that have MSG in it, but not associated in a marketing way. But the marketing of MSG will come full circle. It, it'll, it'll become, the, you know, the dominant glutamic acid vehicle. <laughs> I'm ready for it. I've, I, can, I can think of many places I've eaten that could have used a little sprinkle of Cajun sparkle. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to part two of our New Year podcast in 2024. Really appreciate your guys' support and uh, stay tuned for a lot of good things coming up. And again, watch the new Hulu show and, and all the other things we got going on at Major Domo Media. Sign up for our Discord channel and our YouTube channel, uh, Major Domo Media. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.